I think there are two things happening that are that contradict each other. One is that the boomers and the Gen Xers changed the rules about aging. There used to be more clear rules about what you were supposed to do when, what you were supposed to look like, what you were supposed to dress like, when you were supposed to retire, when you were supposed to have kids and get married. And boomers and Gen Xers rewrote those rules and basically said there are no rules. But on the other side of things, we're also encountering ageism. It still exists no matter how cool you are, no matter, you know, never mind that I still dress like I'm in junior high. Um, I'm, I can't get a job, (laughs) you know, um, someone who interviewed me for a job, uh, expressed surprise that a quote unquote legend like me would be interested and then didn't give me a second interview. Welcome to the unspeakable podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest writer and editor, Sari Botten has done a lot of things related to publishing, to words, to reading in her now decades-long career. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times and The Guardian, among other places, and she was the longtime essays editor at the digital magazine Long Reads. She's also edited two acclaimed anthologies, including Goodbye to All That, Loving and Leaving New York. Her latest venture is a publication that intrigued me from the moment she launched it last fall, it's a magazine about aging. And even though it's called Old Stir Magazine, it's not about being old. It's about getting older. And it features articles and observations from writers and sometimes non writers of all ages, from their 20s to their 90s. Sari is, like me, a member of Generation X, in other words, old, but not that old. And I wanted to talk with her, not just about the different voices in Oldster, but about what it's like to start a new venture in a new creative economy after a long career in mostly traditional media. It's something you've heard me talk about a lot on this podcast. And I love the way Oldster is both a product of this new economy, it lives on Substack, and a window into the recent and not so recent past. Not to mention a reminder that 20-somethings and even teenagers are aging just as quickly as everyone else. We also talk about the thing that people worry about as they get older, maybe even more than their health. That's money and how having enough to last a lifetime is usually dependent on how long that life is. So here is my conversation with Sari Botten. Sari Botten. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having me on. You are the editor and the founder of Old Stir Magazine. Old Stir Magazine, which is not, uh, it, it might not be the first thing uh, people think of when they think about starting um, a, a new business or some kind of entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. But as soon as I saw it, I was completely intrigued. You started it in the late summer, I think, of, of 2021. Um, you know, American culture has always been youth obsessed, but I think uh, arguably it's it's worse now than perhaps any time in history. And uh, I want to kind of talk a, a little bit about why that is. But before we do that, just tell me why you got this idea and why you decided to to launch Oldster. Well, 
I'm old. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm you're 56. using, you're on this technology. You know what a podcast is. You can't be that old. That's true. Well, no, but I'm I'm 56, and um, I, I've always been fascinated with age and what it means to uh, grow older, what it means to pass through time in a human body. It's something I actually first became obsessed with when I was 10 years old. When at my bowling party at Long Beach Bowl on Long Island, my uncle came up to me and said, wow, you'll never be one digit again. And I was crestfallen. I was like, wait a minute, there's something I can't go back to. And um, so it's followed me throughout my life. I've always I've also always felt out of step with my peers. I've always felt like I wasn't doing things at the right time. So my fascination with growing older is not only about being older as I am now. It's about what are you supposed to do when, uh, according to the culture? And is it okay if you don't? And are there alternatives? So, you know, that's really what it came out of. I had uh, I used to be the essays editor at a website called Long Reads. And when I was there, I started a series called Fine Lines, uh, where I had people writing personal essays about what it meant to them to grow older. Uh, and I left there in uh, June of 2020, and I didn't feel done with the subject. And maybe I'll never be done with the subject. And maybe it'll mean different things to me as I grow older. So this summer, I was very sick. I had mononucleosis, which you are not supposed to have, according to the medical establishment, in your 50s. Yeah, really. That's very youthful illness. Well, my doctor didn't even want to test me for it. But I've since learned that I'm one of four women in our 50s in my friend group who've just had mononucleosis, which made me curious about why do doctors still think you can't get mononucleosis in your 50s? Is there something they're not looking at, but also it just made me, it brought me back to the study of age and what does it mean to age. And I think by the end of August, when I was starting to emerge from being really sick, I just felt compelled to dive back in. And I had a dream that I had started a magazine called Oldster and I tweeted Look at me, how silly my, look at how silly my unconscious is. It thought I should start a magazine called Oldster. And then after I tweeted it, I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> and yeah. I just jumped in and started it. And people have been responding really positively. Yeah. Isn't that funny? The things that you say as a joke end up often being the best ideas. I think some of my greatest projects have started off as like a punchline something so improbable that uh, it had to it had to come to fruition. So, well, what were um what were the kinds of pieces you were getting from the beginning? Were you soliciting particular writers about particular topics or did things just kind of start to come in organically? Well, I haven't yet put out a call for submissions and some people are very frustrated about that, but I'm I'm just one person you know with not a lot of money and I also have like nine other jobs. So mostly I've been tapping people and inviting them based on things they tweet about aging or, uh, or post on other social media platforms um, or people I know who've had interesting things to say about aging. I'd love to be able to pay more. But yeah, it, so it's been interesting. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, an, an editor of mine at Catapult, Matt Ortile, is a 30-year-old gay man who had been posting a lot about his, you know, 
aging joints. Uh, I, he's a, a former dancer. Um, and also uh, lamenting not being eligible anymore for 30 under 30 lists. So I said, you know, this is interesting to me. You're someone who is just passing through a milestone and you're also, you know, talking about aging in a way that people much older than you talk about. And also he's remarkably ac accomplished for someone of his age. So, you know, perhaps an old soul. So he took the questionnaire and um, it was a really popular one. And, and, you know, in addition to talking about lamenting no longer being eligible for 30 under 30 lists, he talked about dating someone who's 25 who refers to him as daddy and oh, how gosh. uncomfortable that is. And I thought, you know, you're really illustrating what I'm interested in, which is that we're all going through this at every phase of life, regardless of gender. And that's also part of my mission is I'm trying to destigmatize aging by showing that it's not only women of a certain age who are struggling with it. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons this project really works is because it's not just old people. It's about aging as a concept. You have, like you just described, you have people who I would consider very young writing about aging. And I think, you know, aging, we associate it with being old, but in fact, you're aging from the minute you're born. So it's, it's on, it's on a continuum and it's all, it's all relative. Well, what are the, what are other examples of, of uh, voices that you've had and, and subjects that have been pondered? Well, uh, Jessica Defino, who is a beauty reporter who really reports on the ugly sides of the beauty industry took the questionnaire. Um, and that was really interesting to me. She's only 32, but she's, you know, dealing with, you know, a lot of, she's exploring a lot of the biases and, you know, hypocrisy of the beauty industry and uh, how it's affected by capitalism. So that was really interesting to have her on. I also had a 92 year old uh, male Holocaust survivor, uh, Tibor Spitz, and he had some really interesting perspectives. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's really hard for him to watch later generations make the same mistakes. Um, but also he, you know, feels like every day is his birthday because he's 92. Mm. And that was a really beautiful one. I love to, uh, when you first spoke with him, he asked, how long have you been at Ulster magazine? <laughs> and Ulster is, of course, the county in, in New York where you are based. Yeah, we sat down. Um, and for three hours, he just talked nonstop and I, I couldn't interrupt him, but I also like, oh my God, I paid for a transcription of that interview and it was like $200. And what happened at the end was he asked, yeah, how long have you been at, at Ulster magazine, U-L-S-T-E-R? And we both live in Ulster County. And I was like, oh, that's why he thinks he should just tell me it's in his entire life story. Um, so then I just had him fill out the questionnaire. I realized that there was no way I could sift through this like 45 page interview with him. <laughs> <laughs> You're hiding behind the, gl the glitz and glamour of Ulster magazine. You're an imposter. <laughs> Which no longer exists, by the way. It's been oh, defunct. Oh, it did exist. Okay. Yeah. It's been defunct since like 2014. 
Oh, well, this is a good, okay. This is maybe, maybe they will be revived uh, with a little, <laughs> little jolt of energy. Yeah. Happy to give them the oldster bump. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have, there are two elements to, to oldster. There are sort of essays, pe- pieces people write in the form of posts, and there's also a questionnaire. So tell me about the questionnaire. Like, how do you decide who gets the questionnaire versus who actually writes a piece? How does that all work? Well, I often go to people and say, you have options here. <laughs> you, know, um, you can fill out the questionnaire or you can write a piece. Um, uh, sometimes people just come to me with one or the other. A very funny thing is that sometimes people in the comments on the questionnaire will just post their own responses. You know, here's my, here's my responses to the questionnaire in the comments. I started the questionnaire in part because I realized it was going to be hard for me to do actual interviews with everyone. I thought if I create this questionnaire, kind of like the Proust questionnaire, you know, that's at the back of, I think, Vanity Fair, if I had this standard questionnaire that people could fill out themselves, uh, they were saving me the time of interviewing them, of transcribing. They were typing themselves, which is why I pay $50 for it. I mean, how many places do you go where you get paid? to be interviewed. Um, yeah, really. But, uh, and so many people actually prefer to do the questionnaire. I am going to start something soon where, cause a lot of, so many people write in, write to me and say, you know, can I be on Oldster? And it's more people than I can handle and more people than I can pay. So a, a, something I'm about to start is inviting people to respond to one question on the questionnaire with a, and provide a photo. Um, and I'll probably supply them with a, an Oldster magazine mug from my Etsy oh. shop. <laughs> nice. I hope it's not old AF because, you know, that's my... That's, that's no, my I brand. Will, I will not take that. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, that way, I think it'll be sort of like my humans of New York, you know? Right, right, right. You had, uh, for instance, a questionnaire with Lucy Sant. That one was especially interesting, um, who is now 67, who has recently come out as as transgender. I, I knew Lucy Sant uh, in her previous iteration for a long time. Um, so, so tell us about, about that interview. Yeah, that was, um, really exciting for me. Um, and I did scoop Vanity Fair, by the way, Yeah, (laughs) that piece came out before, um, Lucy's personal essay, which just came out in Vanity Fair about her transition. Um, I happened to live around the corner from Lucy. So, um, I have a little bit of an advantage and very interestingly, so I'm also the editor of an anthology called Goodbye to All That, Writers on Loving and Leaving New York, in which your wonderful essay, My Misspent Youth, has been reprinted. It's a, it's a very- classic anthology. And you have, a, you. You have a follow-up as well. We're, we're gonna yes, never can say goodbye. But That's right. Goodbye to All That was recently reissued, by the way, um, with, with seven new essays by Leslie Jameson and uh, Lisa Coe and um, Ada Limone and Emily Rabito, Carolita Johnson, Danielle Jackson, and uh, Rosie Schapp, by the way. But anyway, uh, I, I published the original version of that in 2013, and I didn't know that it was going to be all women. And ironically, the first person I reached out to was Luke Sant and asked if I could reprint 
My Lost City um, from, I believe, the New York Review of Books. Mm -hmm. And he said yes. And um, I then got a publisher who only published women. Seal Press at the time was by women for women. And so I had to forego that essay. And the irony is that <laughs> Lucy has come out as a woman. And, you know, I, wow. if, 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 if she had come out press, sooner, yeah. yes, yes, too late. But it is an interesting irony. Um, and then another friend who lives around the corner, the book critic, uh, Carolyn Kellogg, helped me reconnect with Lucy, who lives just another block away. <laughs> oh, wow. So, a uh, little, you know, Kingston Confidential here. Yeah, you are living in Oldster County. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I am living in Oldster County. <laughs> so do you have thoughts about what aging kind of entails today that it maybe didn't even 20 years ago? I mean, certainly it's different than 50 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, people always talk about watching the Golden Girls, for instance, looking back at reruns of the Golden Girls and realizing that those actresses were not nearly as old as they were supposed to be. You know, I think that it's just it, people people look a lot younger, for instance, and certainly feel a lot younger for longer than they used to. But I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I just feel like because the world has changed so rapidly and so drastically um, over the last 10 or 15 years or so that people over a certain age, I think, feel, maybe I'm just projecting and speaking for myself, like it's easy to feel irrelevant in a way that is different from the old kinds of feelings of irrelevance as one ages, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two things happening that are, that contradict each other. One is that the boomers and the Gen Xers changed the rules about aging. Uh, you know, there used to be more clear rules about what you were supposed to do when, what you were supposed to look like, what you were supposed to dress like, when you were supposed to retire, when you were supposed to have kids and get married. And boomers and Gen Xers rewrote those rules and basically said there are no rules. But on the other side of things, we're also encountering ageism. It still exists, no matter how cool you are, no matter, you know, never mind that I still dress like I'm in junior high. I'm, I can't get a job. <laughs> you know, um, someone who interviewed me for a job expressed surprise that a quote unquote legend like me would be interested and then didn't give me a second interview and a hired legend? somebody 20- Yes, I'm a legend now. Okay, so what was your initial reaction to that? Were you flattered? And then was did you have to like take a beat and think like, oh, wait. <laughs> that is exactly what happened. You, It's like you're living in my head. At first I was like, me? Legend? Really? And then I was like, oh, wait, legend. That means done. Like I'm, you know, I'm this vaunted former, you know, example yeah. of... of um, so, you know, we... I, I, and I, I really feel like I encounter it at the doctor's office. I, you know, there are very limited ideas about, oh, whether I can have mono. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, uh, friends of mine are experiencing it on the dating front. Although I also have some friends my age who 
have recently become single and have met men much younger than them and are very happy. Um, so I think there's some fluidity in terms of the quote unquote rules, but I also think that a lot of old assumptions exist and we're bumping up against them. And we're more surprised when we bump up against them because wait, what me, you know, I'm, I'm this perennial adolescent. How could I be, you know, no longer eligible for a job? Right. Uh, That's so interesting that, so the boomers and the Gen Xers, the boomers were sort of the first to kind of capitalize on the forever young trope. Like they were the perennial adolescents. That's, you started to see the middle-aged men in the backwards baseball caps on their skateboards, like in the, in the eighties, let's say. And the Chuck Taylors. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then the Gen Xers that, you know, we were sort of, and I'm obviously I'm speaking in huge generalizations because generations <laughs> are yes. generalizations, but just, you know, because it's so fun. So, you know, the, the Gen Xers were kind of just like, well, we were the slackers and we didn't, we were, we were defining ourselves in opposition to the boomers. So we didn't want to like, what was it? We didn't want to brand ourselves. That was for sure. But I don't know. Was it like that we were, we graduated into a recession, a lot of us, and it was hard to get jobs. And, you know, there was this whole idea that we weren't going to be able to establish ourselves, that we were going to be the first generation that wasn't going to live as well as our parents, for example. But yeah, like I, you know, and I, I've written about this a lot, like, because we are not, digital natives. We're not social media natives. We're kind of in this weird spot where we're not old enough to retire, but we have to kind of pivot to the new creative economy if we're, you know, creative people or just, you know, new new ways of doing business. And it's very, very tricky. It is. Yeah. I mean, it, it how is. do you handle it? You know, every day I'm tackling it <laughs> I'm fielding it as it comes. Um, you know, I've kind of accepted that I just have to do my own thing now. And that includes freelancing in a number of different places. You know, I, I have, a, I, I literally have like four jobs. It's just what I'm going to have to probably do for the rest of my life. I don't know that I'll ever be able to retire. I'm definitely right. not living as well as my parents do or did. You know, but also, you know, these age classifications, you know, there's a lot been written about, you know, kind of conflicts between the demographics. And I want to say that I really like younger people and I learn a lot from them. I also realize now they're going to replace me and that's okay. Um, But uh, I really learned so much from younger people and I've, I, I I really uh, am grateful to a lot of them. Like I really am interested in what they have to say. Uh, I don't feel resentful toward them. What are some of the most useful lessons you've taken from a younger person? Or, um, I've or learned more? a lot about feminism from younger people. You know, I feel like as a Gen Xer, I, I grew up at the intersection of should and whatever I like should from my mother's age group, you know, my mom was pre boomer and, uh, and then whatever was like, you know, my age group was like, well, you don't have to do this then. And you don't have to do that then. And so I, I feel like I was kind of adrift and I, 
but then I, I started reading younger women, uh, and, and their positions and their opinions on especially feminism. And it, it enlightened me. It opened my mind. Um, you know, something that was really, really helpful to me was back when Emily Gould and Ruth Curry started Emily Books mm-hmm. and they started publishing. And I believe they reprinted My Misspent Youth. They did. I think that yeah. was one of their early titles. They, uh, they, they, uh, they, they brought it back. Uh, yeah. Where and they put they, it into a new form. Yeah. So many of the books that they published just really opened my eyes and um, they're much younger than I am. And um, and that's just one example. Yeah, no, they did. They they were doing really interesting work. It's funny. They're not, I I always think of them as much younger than I am as well, but they're not that young anymore. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what happens. They're in their, they're probably in their forties. Yeah. 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 So it's crazy. When you say that you always wanted to be, is it true that, are you saying that you always wanted to be older when you were a kid or you were just interested in your aging process? I think I was both. I think I was interested in my aging process. I also think that I have lived life backwards. Um, I was a latchkey kid who had a lot of responsibility, very young. I'm a product of divorce, which always puts a lot of burden on kids. Um, and also like adultifies them very young. And I was very interested in being very adult from a young age. I wanted to do everything before everyone did it. I got married at 23 as a result (laughs) and divorced at 26 and a half as a result too. You know, I am very precocious. Um, but when I got divorced at 26 and a half, I realized like I've been acting too old. I'm not, I'm not this person. Um, I haven't really had an adolescence. I, I sort of became an adolescent at 26 and a half and then kind of aimlessly bounced around for a lot of years. So, and that, that was a period of time also where I became very curious about what am I supposed to be doing and does supposed to even you know, is that even a concept anymore? And if I, if there is no supposed to, okay, now what do I do without a script? You know, I've been living off script and I'm making it up as I go along. And I've been fortunate mostly, but I've definitely gone through periods of my life where I have felt completely lost. I think in part because I'm living off script because the culture doesn't really have a lot of alternatives, um, or doesn't like when people live off script. And when Although you say off script, w- what do you mean? Like you are a freelancer, you're kind of, you know, juggling different artistic projects. What, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, also, I, I didn't have kids. That was a right. big one. Um, and also to first become single and like even learn how to date at 27. I had written an essay for Marie Claire about that like years and years ago about what it was like to at 27 first like learn to casually date uh, before with, apps. Yeah. Right. Before we, apps. we should say in case people aren't putting that together. So yeah, that is right. So you're saying that you hadn't actually, so you married young, like you married somebody you had known as a teenager. I married the second person. I married the second person I ever dated. 
And what is dating? Okay, because also in our time in high school, nobody dated. That was not a term that people used. You went out, you quote, went out. Went out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You went out and then you aimed to marry that person, which was a sort of a, you know, a throwback to our mothers. That's how I. Yeah. My first boyfriend, even though we, we could not have been more mismatched. But we held on to each other and I mean, a bond formed, you know, but we couldn't have been more wrong for each other. But we went out for like three years and we were certain we were going to marry each other um, someday. Like, and wow. in my in my group of friends, you know, I married at 23 and a half. My boyfriend, my, my husband and I, we were the one of the later couples to marry but my our co- cohort got out of college and like went right to Leonard's of Great Neck, <laughs> the wedding factory on Long That's Island. So interesting. What? So okay. So you did you grew up in Long Island? Like, what was your kind of what, what was your demographic like? This is fascinating to me. Yeah, I grew up in Jewish culture on Long Island. That's another way I live off script, which is that I don't observe religion. I don't. Uh, but I'm also the daughter of of clergy. Um, so that was another way that I lived off script. I made a choice that was not in keeping with everyone around me, but I didn't come to it until later. But um, I grew up in this kind of sheltered, reformed Jewish, but still sheltered world where, you know, you didn't date around. You didn't, you know, you 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 dated someone Jewish and you married them. It's crazy when I think about it now that you could, you know, predict at 16 or 17 that you would marry the person you were with, but you, you had to love them. You know, you had to say, I love you. You had to earn an I love you from them. I mean, these were really, I was, I was living in a very retrograde way. Yeah. were you aware that there was a world out there, a world not very far away in New York City, where the rules were completely different? I think I did, and I, you know, as soon as I got divorced, I moved. And to that the must city. have been hard. That must have been really hard to get divorced. Oh, it was from that. really, really hard. It was really hard. It was messy and it was painful, but it was one of the first moments where I really became me and like asserted the truth of me. And, and I knew that I had to move to New York city. I knew that I could no longer be in a suburb. I was living on long Island in the very town I was born in. And I just realized like, I haven't seen the world. I haven't, you know, I made a lot of choices that I wish I could make differently now. Uh, you know, I wish that I had, when I got out of college, I went and moved somewhere and, and, you know, I was becoming a journalist and I had had this amazing internship at New York Newsday where they just threw me in the deep end for a summer and had me, you know, as a staff writer. And I had opportunities. I could have, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't put my career first. I wish I had. I was very concerned about whether I could hang on to my boyfriend and get him to marry me. <laughs> I, I, it's so, I can't even believe that I'm saying these words because it's not who I am now. I mean, I am married. I'm happily married. Um, 
But I think it makes sense. I mean, especially if you're from that kind of world. But I just think there's something about being a teenager. It's it's a little bit wired into us. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they're 16, they think they're going to marry the person, you know, whatever Maybe. random guy they're dating in junior year of high school or something. And it's absurd, but you don't you don't know anything different. So why wouldn't you? you yeah. But it's been interesting, though, to watch younger generations and how they handle this and not that I would ever have really been a good candidate for like hookup culture. It's just not who I am. But, um, but I really, I don't know. I, I admire women who don't feel like they need a man and are not willing to compromise everything about who they are. And that's who I used to be. Mm. And yeah. And I, I, it came from, you know, being the age that I was in the world that I was. Right. Although I'm so glad that apps were not around uh, when I was in my 20s. I'm glad I missed the hookup culture thing. I can, I can see, yeah. I, I see what you're saying, but I also see that there, there's a, there's also a pressure to pretend you're the kind of person who's into hooking up. Yes. Uh, for, yes. for men and women. Uh, I met my husband on an app, by the way. I met him on the Nerve Personals. Oh my gosh! Site. It wasn't an that app. Was an in, it was that's, a, that was an intense <laughs> site. <laughs> it was an intense site, and I did. Um, there were a lot of men who were, even though I had set my preferences to like I would like a relationship. There were a lot of men who just wanted to hook up, and um, I felt comfortable saying to them, "That's not what I'm interested in." So. You say that there's a lot of stuff you would go back and do differently. And I have to say that that regrets are something I've been struggling with a lot the last Ooh. few years, especially. I So I am about to turn 52. Just might as well say that. There's wow. no, it's easily uh, Googleable. So there's no <laughs> point in uh, dodging that. But yeah, like I think for a long time, maybe, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I kind of had this idea that, well, you know, I, I probably made some mistakes, but it's it's okay because, you know, everything has led to where I am now. So, you know, I'm not really going to regret anything. And lately, I just think, my God, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would just give her a stern lecture about, you know, you've got to make a sharp left turn here. Like all, a whole bunch of things that you think that you have no interest in or that you think you would be terrible at, you need to seriously think about doing them. And sometimes this just consumes me. Mm. And I don't know if this is a function of aging or if it, this is just has to do with my particular circumstances. H have you run into anybody kind of wrestling with, with that kind of thing? Oh, definitely. Uh, um, you know, there have been some people who've taken the questionnaire who've talked about regrets and wishing they had done things differently. I mean, Lucy Sant talks about wishing that she had come out in her youth so that she could have had an adolescence as a girl. And, uh, I think regret is natural at this age. You know, listen, there's only so many routes you can take in one life and yeah. you can't go back. And so I'm interested in people's regrets and I want to publish them, but I also think you can't linger too long on them and you you know, it, it's okay to say, you know, I wish I'd done this and then pivot to whatever you can that you're going to enjoy more from here. Because what else are you going to do? You can't go back. Right, right. Well, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you were describing before about 
having four jobs. And I mean, I've talked to my oh, listeners yeah. about this before. I've, I have never hustled harder in my life than I am right now. I mean, Me I thought either. I worked constantly in my 20s and it's nothing compared to now. And I guess I was sort of looking forward to um, <laughs> resting on my legacy as a legend. <laughs> and I mean, uh, it just, it, it, we're, you know, we're legends that are, that, that are still uh, working around the clock somehow. I am working the hardest I have ever worked. I work constantly. Um, and we're, you know, we're in a field where our work is, has become devalued. There are fewer venues. There are more people. It's been democratized so that everyone's a writer. And I, I think there are good things and bad things about that. Uh, you know, an interesting thing was somebody unsubscribed from Oldster and gave the reason that they were um, disappointed that I was publishing pu uh, professional writers instead of just regular people. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why hate professional writers who've been working their entire lives? Who else is supposed to write for a magazine? I also, though, want to include more voices of people who are not writers. I'm working now on a piece by a fashion designer. You know, I want, I want to bring more voices in that aren't writers. And that's where those, you know, posts where I'm going to invite people to respond to one question, you know, with their photo, sort of the humans of New York aspect. I, I, I would like to do that. I want to, I want to hear about, you know, what people who aren't writers are thinking about getting older. But it was interesting to me that there was this like bias against professional writers. It's a profession. Well, We've been working on this our entire lives. We've been, you know, honing I our think, craft. I think too, sometimes people think that writers are such outliers in terms of human experience or temperament or values that it, it, that we don't really count. You know, I, when I, you know, I know you've edited a couple of anthologies. I edited an anthology um, back in, came out in 2015 about choosing not to have children. And I, I had 16 writers and I commissioned essays from them and they they wrote lovely pieces and you know we edited them and there was an exchange and they're tight polished professional pieces and they're in an anthology that that i think i consider a success but many people said well I, you know who cares what about what a bunch of writers have to say about this and i thought well you know you you could make that argument i could have done a sort of studs turkle you know i could have okay. gone around and interviewed people from all walks of life about why they chose not to have children and i i would love to see that book i think that would be a great book but that's not this book and the fact is you know we get writers to write these things because writers write we it's it's the job of the writer to kind of look at the world and and metabolize you know, various aspects of the zeitgeist uh, in terms of how it relates to their own experience and, and, and do that job. And I just, I think that a lot of people think that somehow writers are like a different species emotionally or something. Yeah. And I think, um, first of all, I love that anthology you mentioned, um, Selfish, Shallow and Self-Absorbed. I yes. love it, especially as a person who does not have kids um, and didn't feel entitled to choose that. I needed a doctor's note in my mind, which I got. I got the doctor's note. And oh, then, interesting. I should yeah. have had you write a piece. I don't know why you got <laughs> in the book. Okay, well, let me do another one. 
I did do a mother love about that. Right. Well, we'll do, I'll do a choosing not to have grandchildren and see how you figure that out. (laughs) But I think there's also a lot of resentment. Um, It's very interesting because I, I, I teach in two MFA programs. So I'm helping people become professional writers. And then on the flip side, I'm, you know, I'm publishing anthologies and people have said that to me about my anthologies too. They've said, well, why is it all writers? And, you know, I I think there's this resentment because I think there are a lot of people who wish they were writers too, would, you know, and, and don't know how to become them or have tried and been discouraged by how hard it can be. And it is hard, you know, and then you exert all this energy all these years into becoming a writer, into honing your craft. And then, you know, the field just basically collapses and people are resentful. (laughs) Yeah. And also like any people can write. I mean, people can physically type out a sentence. It's not something like playing an instrument where you do have to have a certain kind of craft. Uh, I think it's it it gets kind of confusing sometimes because you know yes just about anybody can can physically write, uh, but that's different than being a, a professional. But then it's hard. Like, what does a professional mean? A professional means you make a living at it. Well, we're not all making a living at it anymore. So yeah, and professional it's, anymore. Yeah, and it, it is interesting. Like you know, you see people become professional writers, you know, they write one piece and it gets picked up and they get a book deal. You know what? Yeah. What are the, what are the barriers to entry? They're not all consistent, but it's, it's a field where it's harder and harder to make a living. And I've bet, you know, everything on it. I don't have any other skills. I've tried things. I've tried jobs where I've used my writing skills for other things and that has never gone well. Really? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, those are those jobs. I remember when I got out of college, I was like looking for, you know, literally in the, in the want ads, like in the classified ads. And they would say, there's a lot of writing involved. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot, so, you know, any, you know, the the worst possible job, you know, I would go on the interview and, you know, I would tell myself, well, there's a lot of writing involved, uh, working for this, uh, mini storage company and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) typing out invoices or something. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, um, I had a job for a digital media company where I had to blog for a non-existent person who was a, an alleged fan of one of their clients. She was a fan of this glassware company. Uh, her name was Julia and we would have these meetings like, you know, what, what's Julia's motivation? Which, which candlestick set would she buy and how would she feel about it? (laughs) And it just, I couldn't, Ugh. I couldn't, I couldn't. Um, I've had some really interesting jobs. I've, I had a job writing the website for the United States Postal Service. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm an expert in click and ship in case you have any questions, you know. Well, I, I, you know, so I had a job <laughs> writing the website for the Always MaxiPad company. I, nice. I wrote the Always MaxiPad website and it was incredibly lucrative this was back in the late 90s cuz it was um it was procter and gamble it was through an ad agency so yeah. it was like a gold mine hey i won a webby award for um my work on the maybelline website which you know i'm allergic to maybelline but anyway <laughs> literally the the brand i'm allergic to most makeup i buy my makeup in the health food store <laughs> i have oh, a lot of allergies good. i don't i just don't know how to put makeup on so i i never i never could figure it out I feel like I might as well just put on clown makeup or something. But, yeah. 
we're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. So, but do you, either for you or for the the people that you work with, do you find that if if one is in a creative field, it, it's it's harder to feel like a grown up? I mean, because I think that's a lot of what you're describing. And you know, Catherine Texier, who's seventy now, or she she's seventy two. She wrote um, a beautiful piece just about how. She actually feels younger now than she did when she was in her 40s. But I wonder how much of that is just because she lives this kind of bohemian life and she has these kind of wonderful trappings. She, it, Catherine Texier is sort of like, you know, I, I, I look up to her as somebody. If I can, if I can live the way she does uh, when I'm 72, I will be very proud oh, of yeah. myself. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a big admirer of her work. She and I were featured, by the way, that, that piece I told you about earlier where I wrote about becoming single at 27 and dating for the first time. She, Catherine and I had pieces packaged together in Marie Claire, and hers was about dating after her divorce. Uh, so that was the first time we met. She's wonderful. Um, but back to your question, I do think that being in a creative field uh, makes it more complicated feeling like an adult. Because there are fewer clear guidelines, rules, and especially, you know, as more and more ways evolve of publishing, like I'm publishing myself now, I don't need anybody to approve or accept my 
pieces that I publish, it's weird. There's no, there are no grownups for me to answer to. I so relate to that. You don't realize the degree to which your editor becomes a kind of surrogate parent. Yes, absolutely. And so I, um, you know, I'm publishing, you know, newsletters. I also publish Adventures in Journalism, which is sort of just my own personal blog about my own weird career path. And um, I publish Memoir Monday, which is it mostly curates personal essays. But there's no one for me to answer to on any of them. And that is weird. I love it. But every now and then I think, oh, wow, this isn't going to fly. And every time I say that, it flies. I People respond and they're like, especially the stuff that I'm mostly like uncertain about or anxious about, people say, oh, that resonated with me. So I know, um, but oh, it's so, but aren't, aren't you ever afraid that you just, you, you don't have any checks and balances on yourself? I mean, I think the thing too, like with, with doing this podcast, I've had this similar experience that I feel like the bigger risk I take, the bigger the payoff. On the other hand, you really, you've got such a self-selecting audience. The, the people who are listening to this podcast are the people who are inclined to listen to it, who want to listen to it. It's not like you're writing something for the New York Times and then it's just in front of the faces of millions of people who you know, may or may not have any interest in you or what you're saying and they're going to respond in all kinds of ways. I mean, this, this siloing of um, the creative economy, it's it's very seductive because it, I think it can give us the illusion that everything that we're doing is great. <laughs> That's true. Yes. And if you don't have an editor, you know, sort of authority figure, uh, you know, uh, sort of on top of that, I, I think it, uh, so I, I really worry that, you know, it could be a, a recipe for disaster. So, but, so maybe I'm being my, I'm, I'm kind of policing myself, uh, <laughs> which is also a mixed bag. Well, yeah, I, I, I definitely sometimes worry about that. It's interesting you you use the word silo or siloing, and um, one of the things I'm aiming for with Oldster is to not let it become a silo, not let it just become old people, not let it just become women of a certain age, like a lot of the um, sites and newsletters uh, about aging tend to be. You know, I'm trying like. Yeah, I'm trying. That's one of the reasons that I have a lot of young people and people of all genders is because I don't want it to only be a bunch of older women talking to each other and no one else is hearing us. Right. Right. And no one else is paying attention. And so when I, you know, when I post Jessica DeFino at 32 or Matt Ortile at 30 and they post it on their social media, I'm drawing in people who might not go to a site about aging without that. And then they're becoming aware of it and they're engaging with their own experience of getting older and they're also signing up and reading. So, you know, that I don't like siloing and, and, um, especially around age and aging. And, um, so that's one of my goals is to not become a silo. Yeah. And that's why this is so brilliant because there's, I don't see really how you could politicize aging for instance. I'm sure there's a way. <laughs> I'm sure uh, I'm sure it will happen at any moment, but it is it is truly a universal experience. It really Maybe is. Although more so than anything. It's true. It is. And I, I think about this, um, they might be giant song um, called Older. And the lyric is, uh, you're older than you've ever been. And now you're even older. 
and now you're even older and now you're even older. And it's something that's happening to every one of us. Um, I'm having a very interesting experience right now, which is that Narratively Magazine came to me and asked me to do a reported piece on ageism. The editor has been reading Oldster and she's in her 30s and she likes it. And I think she also might have heard me speak on a podcast about difficulty getting a job. So she asked me to write this piece about ageism. So I'm reporting it now and I've reached out to some people and I'm, I put out a call and two different women now who have been sources on this subject before have said, no, thank you. The articles on it don't help. They only make it worse. I'm tired of being this cranky person out there. It doesn't help me. And it, the problem isn't getting any better with each piece on ageism. And, you know, that's interesting to me. Yeah, I'm just encountering this pushback from old women older than me who are like, you know what, doesn't help to talk about it. And it is an issue um, that still exists. And so that's interesting to me. Oh, that's so interesting. It's And it's the same generation of women who were like, well, it doesn't help to talk about workplace inequality so much. It doesn't help to talk about sexual harassment as much as you might want to because you're just exacerbating it. It's, it's a yeah. little bit of the same principle and it's probably some of the same group. And actually, it's my instinct to say the same thing. I mean, I will be perfectly honest. I feel I have many times a day, I ask myself if I'm having difficulty with something or I'm not getting some opportunity or I'm not breaking through in some way because of my age and because I'm a woman specifically. And then I shove it in the back of my mind. I say, don't, you, you can think it, but don't say it because it's just going to make you look so much worse and it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy if you say that out loud. I think there is something to that. I mean, I also think that maybe, I mean, I'm going to report the piece and write the piece and I'm also going to include some first person stuff about my own experience. And I'm going to, I hope to shed some new light. I don't know that there's new light to shed. Maybe there's a different audience. I don't know if it'll, I can't imagine it can make the pro problem worse. Maybe it just won't make it any better. Um, but I think that is political. I think that is a political aspect of, of aging and, and how we're, it's, you know, how we're treated and, are you yeah. hearing the same thing from men? Are you talking to men for this piece or is it just women? I've interviewed one man. I'm open to, I want to include people, you know, the same reason that I include people of all genders on Oldster. I want to include men in this article. But yeah, I don't know that it will actually do anything good. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I stopped writing about where I live, even places that are, even pieces that are critical of gentrification um, is that I realized that when you write about gentrification, it's a signal to gentrifiers <laughs> to come there. Um, right. That it, right. it is really counterproductive to write about a place being gentrified. Um, it, it's like speculators immediately look at it and say, oh, there's a place. Oh and I wonder if, you know, writing about ageism only contributes to the problem or if it just Oh, but doesn't... this is so frustrating because this is that whole like, oh, well, we can't speak about this because you're giving ammunition to the other side. Yeah. Like, we, we can't talk about this in a nuanced way because no matter how nuanced it is, it will be, you know, reduced to 
nothing and then weaponized by the other side. So you might as well just skip the whole discussion. And that's like everything I rail against. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. I, you know, I feel like it's important. And also the women who are saying this to me, they're, they're boomers and they have been encountering this longer than I have. It's new to me. I'm only first encountering it. So maybe I'm coming at it with new eyes. Maybe I'm speaking to a new generation. Maybe I'm speaking to a new generation that can actually take it in and do something different. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know that I'm not going to include those women in my piece because they don't want to be included in my piece and that's fine. But yeah, I, I want, I'm not going to shy away from it because it might bring pushback or it might not help. I wonder too, if men are reluctant to speak up because it's going to be interpreted as just whining about, you know, being aging. They're probably white men, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm never going to get another job. My time is over. Uh, And it's, it's going to come across as resentful. And I think women get painted with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and people don't want to put themselves out there in that way. And, um, yeah, but I do, I, I do think, and again, I don't mean to harp on Generation X all the time, but I do think that we might be in a kind of cool position to reframe aging. I hope uh, so. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do with Oldster Magazine is not only, I, I am, I am showing the frustrations. I, you know, I have pieces by people who are, you know, complaining, uh, expressing their anger. Um, I definitely, you know, have people showing their resentment, but I also want to show that some people are really enjoying getting older, uh, or that there are aspects they like and there are aspects they don't, that it is nuanced, that it is complicated. I mean, I'm the happiest I've ever been. You know, I, I like my life. I like being my age. What do you like about it? Why is that? Well, I feel more grounded in myself. I feel like I am less inclined to go along with things that don't feel right to me. I feel more self-possessed. I've also created a life for myself that works for me. I'm in a different kind of marriage than I was in the first time where we have a lot of interdependence, but also independence and mutual respect. And we both are happy to live a life off script. My husband is also freelance. Um, he's also, he was just as happy as I was to discover that I needed a hysterectomy. <laughs> we didn't have to have kids. Um, That's great. Oh, that would have been a great piece. <laughs> that in my book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a modern love. You can find it. Um, and so I've created a life that fits me. Sometimes I encounter people who don't like my life and my choices. There are some family members who don't like my life and my choices, and that's uncomfortable for me. And what is that about? Do you think it's because they are secretly envious? A little bit. Why, also, why, yeah. uh, why else would anybody care? This is like when people get super angry that, that you don't have kids, that you've chosen not to have kids. I, I sometimes feel like, well, it's because it actually, it, it, maybe it didn't occur to them that, it, that, that they, they yeah. necessarily have to do this thing. That's really hard. It's a really, really hard thing. And so if you think that you have to, you know, you kind of have to tell yourself that you had no choice sometimes in order to, to get through it. Definitely. I think, I think there are people who are resentful. I, yeah, that I, here I am having fun 
You know, I, I think my life is fun. I also have, you know, very little financial security, <laughs> no job security. I mean, I, I pay for it. There will be no one to take care of me when I'm right. old. You know, I, I, I pay for it. It costs me to have this life that fits me, but I really enjoy it. And it took me a long time to get here. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm happy in my life. And while there are things I worry about for the future, I like being my age because it brought me here. You know, I don't like my arthritis. I don't like, you know, a lot of the things that are happening to my body and that are going to happen to my body. But do you find that your contributors who are in their 60s and 70s and beyond are more at peace with their age than say people in their 40s and 50s? That's interesting. I think a lot of them are. I also get yelled at a lot, not by my contributors, but readers. Readers in their 70s and 80s get very mad at me for featuring younger people. Huh. Uh, they put it in comments. They email me. They tweet things like, you call that an oldster? <laughs> <laughs> and I always try to explain. In fact, I'm, I'm working on a, on a uh, frequently asked asked questions post about this because I think especially older people don't get that I'm using oldster in a subversive tongue in cheek way. Yeah, really. It's it's ironic. Exactly. And they I can't tell you how many times I've been yelled at by, you know, octogenarians <laughs> about that. And wow. um but they're the only ones who don't get it. And, you know, they feel like they've earned the title of oldster. You know, how dare you feature someone in their 30s? But I'm featuring people in their 30s who, I mean, I don't know. Do you remember when you graduated high school feeling like, oh, I've moved on to this new phase of life and where I'm going to be older and I'm going to go on to something different? I mean, graduating college, entering the job yeah. market, you, you know, at each phase of life, you feel older you and you you mourn the things that you can no longer do and you know it's if you're an oldster to everybody younger than you oh yeah well i only ever wanted to be older i hated being a child i couldn't stand it i mean and there were a whole bunch of reasons for that that you know aren't really worth getting into in any depth now but oh i all i ever wanted to be was an adult really and oh yeah yeah, I did not like the world of childhood. My parents did not like children particularly. They didn't want to really treat us like children. They didn't necessarily treat us like adults either. So uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to be free and not have to do childish things. I didn't like playing. I kind of couldn't, I couldn't stand the kind of randomness of recess. And that's, I actually, and I couldn't wait to go to college. And then it turned out that I went to a college that was really the wrong kind of place for me because it was smaller than my high school, pretty much. And it was only undergraduates and it, it felt like an extension of adolescence. And I really wanted to be with adults. Like I should have gone to a big, like big public university and kind of like lived off campus and had a part-time job and hung out with grad students or something, you know, but whatever, like that's, that's one of the regrets I can, you know, go back and obsess over, but that's yeah, so interesting. No. Yeah. Oh, I hated being a kid, but then, but it's funny because I, I don't like being the age I am now. I'm, I'm still in a place where I, I think about it a lot 
And I think that probably has a lot to do with, you know, my, my circumstances, you know, Ooh. over the last few years, it's not, which, which aren't, which aren't bad. I just, you know, I happen to, I'm, I'm a, I've been a little unsettled over the last several years, but so like what age, what do you think is your internal age? Like what's, what's your kind of soul age? Yeah, I write about this. Uh, I took the questionnaire, by the way, on my birthday uh, in October. And I have a few different ages inside me. There's a part of me that is forever 11, which is the age I was when my parents split up. Mm. So it was like this big life change that just brought me to attention. And um, I became sort of hypervigilant. I felt fractured and it became, I became really hypervigilant at that age. And I paid attention to everything. Uh, there's a part of me stuck at them, but there's also part of me that's stuck at other life junctures where major things happen, like 27 when I became single and and entered a new life and moved to the city. There's a part of me that's 36 and you know left a, a bad relationship, um, my last bad relationship. So you know, I when I picture myself, I picture sometimes 36 year old me. I picture 11 year old me. I contain multitudes, Megan. <laughs> I contain How many dare ages. You? <laughs> and I, I'm always interested when people respond to that question on the questionnaire. It's one of the questions, you know, one of the early questions on the questionnaire is, do you, uh, is there another age you associate with yourself in your mind? And if so, what is that? And why do you think? And it's always fascinating to me how many people think of themselves at other ages. Yeah, I I would say 27. I feel like that was my peak year. And I'm not entirely sure why. I think it I had, you know, I had my own apartment for the first time. I was that I I had been living with roommates always and I kind of finally got my own place and I had sort of, you know, my career, I felt like it was had momentum. You know, so I, I I go back and I romanticize that time, but at the same time, I was, you know, really anxious. Like, you know, I was I didn't know if things were going to work out. There was stuff I really, really wanted in my life, and I was afraid I wasn't going to get it. And I was, you know, always financially uh, un- unstable and always stressed out about money. Uh, so I don't know. I think it's it's so easy to just have re- revisionist history about our own happiness. It's true. I'll tell you, financial security, my biggest regret is never learning about money and business <laughs> and really, and, and, um, I mean, I, I don't yeah. come from money, so, I mean, I don't have that advantage, but I wish that I had started funding a retirement account much younger. I wished, I wish that I had figured out some sort of more stable day job. I was teaching journalism a few years ago at SUNY Albany, and I constantly told my students, study something else and become a journalist about it and have it as something that you can do. Because I regret not having any other skills, uh, any other way to make a living. So now I'm just you know, making it up as I go along and chasing my tail and trying to just stay alive. Like it's it's hard. Oh, I I a hundred percent, as the kids say. Uh, yeah, that's exactly my situation, and that's what I tell students all the time. Don't major in writing. 
do something else, get really good at something else, and then write about that thing. You know, you can, there's, there's plenty of people writing for the New Yorker who like, you know, are surgeons and detectives and all kinds of other, you know, geologists and all kinds of other things. But I never would have done that. I never would have taken my own advice. Would you have? Me either. (laughs) No, no. What kinds of things would you like to hear? I mean, are there are there particular topics that you you have a sort of you know fantasy fantasy submission would come into you or fantasy assignment that you could give? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I don't have an answer to that. I wish I did. I, I would like more articles. I would like to. I would like to be able to commission reported pieces on aspects of getting older. You know, things that we don't see articles about although i lately have been seeing lots of pieces about like older people having sex and i i do post link roundups i have um link roundups that i publish i don't know once a week ish because everything is ish because i'm making it up as i go along but (laughs) i i do some aggregation of of articles um so i have been seeing some things about people having sex in their 70s and 80s and that's inspiring um to know that that can happen I'm interested in things that run counter to the narrative we've been sold for a long time. I want to learn that at my age, it's not too late for me to create a better future for myself financially. Please, somebody tell me that. Somebody write me an article that tells me how at 56, with very little money in retirement, very little income, I can write this ship. Oh my God, I would love to see that. Don't ask me. Yeah, I won't. <laughs> I, I, I'm not the person to write that, but yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's so. It's it's really. Um, I, I've always said this. I think money is the last taboo. I mean, we can see piece after piece, article after article about, say, women's bodily functions as they age. You know, we have a lot of menopause pieces. I know it's not. You know, people say it's not discussed as much as it should be. I think that's starting to change. It, it's amazing how it's easier for people to talk about their bodies than to talk about their bank accounts. Oh yeah. Money is very taboo. I mean, partly because there's so much income inequality, there's so much yeah, that you know, you, nobody wants to be nobody wants to talk about their advantages that they've right. had. There's so much hidden money. People have yeah. secrets. People have hidden trust funds all the time. Absolutely. Especially people in the arts. Really, it's true. I think people assume this about me, and I've had people say things to me about, you know, about my affluence. And I'm like, "Have you been to my house? <laughs> have you, have you, you know, you don't know anything about my life." But people make this assumption about me, I guess, because of the field that I'm in, because I have uh, taken risks not intelligently. <laughs> um, well. Yeah. And not having children is a huge advantage financially. It I mean, is. I've said many times, the only reason my life works at all is because I do not have any dependents. I don't have children that depend on me. And I also don't have parents that um, that I've had to support or take care of uh, in, into, their, into their old age. My parents um, both passed away relatively young. Um, so... Yes. That's, uh, you know, as sad as that is, that's a blessing as well. 
Yeah, I, I don't have children and I have parents who were teachers in the New York State teaching system for many years. And that turned out to have been a really good choice for them. They, I mean, they have like still the best health insurance plus Medicare. Uh, you know, they have pensions. And fortunately, my, I don't have to support my parents. I mean, if they live, you know, into their hundreds, that might change. You know, I'll be in my 70s and I don't know how I'll help them. <laughs> but yeah, wow. yeah, that, that, that is an advantage. Do you think about what's going to happen when you're dying? Do you think about your death? Oh, I think about it all the time. I had, I have a piece uh, that I published on Long Reads called Losing the Plot, which is going into my book, which is coming out this summer. And uh, I talk about how I am simultaneously obsessed with death and avoiding planning for it. And Every few months I say to my husband, we really need an end of life plan and we like need to change, exchange passwords <laughs> mm -hmm. and then we don't do it. And one of these days we're going to do it. One of these days we're going to go to some kind of lawyer, estate lawyer, and we don't have any money to uh, divvy up or anything like that, but we do have to figure out like, what are we going to do with our bodies? And yeah you know, I, I'm terrified that, you know, one morning I'm going to wake up and he's going to be dead next to me. This has happened to many of my friends. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm always trying to like sneak vegetables into his food so that he'll live. <laughs> um, <laughs> that'll, that'll do the trick. That'll, that'll no, nobody who ever ate a vegetable ever, ever died. So there you go. <laughs> exactly. But, um, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about death um, how am I going to die? When am I going to die? I have no idea. I have no idea where I am in the course of my life, whether I'll live to 110 or I'll live till next year. Both of my grandmothers died in their mid fifties and I have now outlived both of them. And I've thought about this all the time. Like, you know, am I going to be like them? Am I at my end or am I in the middle? None of us knows. And that's a really fascinating thing that I don't think there's been enough written about, that we're living the stories of our lives without knowing how they're going to evolve or turn or end. It's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying and it should be fascinating. I wish there was a way to reframe it so that it was interesting because I think about it all the time, but then part of thinking about it is then telling yourself to stop thinking about it because you will go crazy. Oh, I have driven myself nuts about this. I mean, I almost died when I was 40. I had I a remember. freak illness. Yeah. And so that was 12 years ago now almost. And, um, you know, I should say to myself, well, gosh, I mean, why are you complaining about getting old? Because you should be happy that you're getting old. I mean, if they had told you when you came out of that hospital that, you know, <laughs> you, you, you were going to live to see 52... I mean, I guess by that, you know, in the middle of my acute crisis, uh, if they had said to my loved ones uh, as they stood over my hospital bed, oh, well, you know, she'll get to be 52 and she'll be whining about, uh, you know, her aches and pains. It would have been absolute jubilation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why can't why, why can't I see it that way? But yeah, it's 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 really it's really dizzying. And I, I feel like it's, you know, ultimately it's it's the only it's the only subject. I mean, it's really the, only, the the main thing one thinks about in life. 
yeah, even without we, thinking about it. COVID has made it more that that idea more present in my mind. We've had three COVID deaths in my family, and it's made me more cognizant that there's something out there right out my door that could kill me. Um, and then also there was a night when I had mono this summer before I got the positive result from my mono test when we didn't know what I had. And I had also been misdiagnosed with cancer. Uh, this ENT took one look at my throat and said, Whoa, that's a tumor. That's cancer. And, oh um, gosh. so, but I had 103 fever. My head was pounding. I couldn't stop vomiting. We didn't know what was wrong with me. And uh, I had been that way all weekend. And that night I thought I could die. I, I'm going to die of this. This is going to kill me, whatever it is. And we'd, we'd ruled out COVID, but I thought, did I maybe just have a false negative? Like, do I have COVID or am I dying? And I really, really thought I was afraid to go to sleep that night. I thought I'm going to die. Um, and then the next day, my positive test result came back from mono and uh, everything made a lot more sense. And also I, a couple of days later, shifted out of the most acute phase of it and could go on with my life. But um, wow. it was very scary. It was, scary. it was, yeah. What do you imagine or what do you wish for when you think of yourself 20 years from now, say? So you're 56 now. What do you want 76 to look like? Mm. I want to live someplace warmer than Kingston, New York. Well, it might it's, be warm by then. Actually, you know, you, you're, you're you right. You know what? Just just stick it out. <laughs> okay. I'm going to stick it out. It'll be, you know, balmy yeah. by then. Just hold. You're holding. Yeah. Um, 76. Uh, I'd like to be able to at least partly retire by then. But I'd also. But what like, does that mean? We can't retire. I can't. I'm not going to retire. What does retiring mean to people like us? Well, to me, it means buying lottery tickets at the bodega next door. I literally live next door to a bodega and I, I do buy lottery tickets. I'm going to confess that. But I, I don't know. I, I, I hope that I'm in a, place, in a position where I can write what I want to write and thrive in that way. Like I want to still be writing and maybe editing and curating and uh, helping other people get published. Um, I want to still be part of the conversation not excluded from it because I'm old. You know, I want, I want to be valued for my experience and my viewpoint rather than marginalized for it. I hope that I am healthy enough to enjoy my life. Uh, you know, that I, the arthritis doesn't accelerate. I, I'm really, really struggling with arthritis right now. And I, I hope that that resolve that doesn't accelerate to a place where I you know, need to replace all my joints because I certainly can't afford to. I hope that I avoid cancer. There's a lot of cancer in my family. And I'm also seeing so many women stricken with cancer lately, even women in their 30s and 40s. A lot of breast cancer has been mm. coming to my attention lately. I hope I avoid that. You know, I, I just mostly hope that I get to feel like a whole person and not, I hope that I don't feel anything in life cut off to me because of my age. Well, I'm with you there. Sari, thank you so much for speaking with me. Oldster Magazine. I love it. Thank I really, I was so, so excited much. when I first saw it. And um, I'm really, I'm really excited when I see it in my pop up in my inbox every week. 
Megan, thank you so much for having me on and for subscribing to Oldster Magazine. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sari. That was my conversation with writer and editor Sari Botten. She is the editor of Oldster Magazine. Her memoir in essays, And You May Find Yourself, will be published by Heliotrope this coming summer. I should mention that depending on when you hear this, I myself will be publishing an essay in Oldster. Um, It's my birthday week, or it just was my birthday, and I offer some reflections on turning the age I happen to have just turned. You can find it, or will soon be able to find it, at oldster.substack.com. At last, finally, at last, no, just last, um, I should probably mention again that the paperback edition of my most recent book, The Problem with Everything, uh, will be coming out February 22nd. It includes a new foreword with some thoughts about what's happened in the just over two years since the book came out. Um, This week, Valentine's Day week, if you join this podcast's Patreon at the $20 a month level or higher, you will get a personal signed copy of this new edition of The Problem With Everything. Yes, I will sign it for you or for anyone you want and I will send it to you myself. So you can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable to find out all about that and to join our growing community of listeners. As always, if Patreon is not your thing, you can support the show by going to the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com and making a one-time donation in any amount. Um, And you can also uh, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a review, preferably positive. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.